Well, that video is a great illustration of one of the great frustrations in life of living in the tension of what you know you should be doing and then what you're actually doing and then trying to convince yourself in that margin that one day you're going to get around to it. And I don't know about you, but I've met a lot of people who are aiming to do a lot of things. And for most folks, the reality is not aiming to do more. It's just quit aiming and and shoot. Right. They're just always aiming to do this or aiming to do that. In reality, sometimes those aspirational values never become actual values for them. And it's a very frustrating place to live in the tension uh, between those two things. So, well, this we start off on the New Year's. We're going to start a new series, say just a short three week series uh, called Next Level. And what we're going to look at over the next few weeks is basically some areas of the Christian life that, that we know should be important to us. But when you look at the research and and how the church is being effective and what what the behavior patterns are within the church, there's a huge disparity uh, in these areas. So that's what we're going to look at over the next few weeks. How, how many of you are still good on your New Year's resolutions? Yeah, goes to like a few of you, like some of them, but most of you are just totally honest, right? Well, here's the encouraging thing. Only 360 more days to go, right? Uh, we live in a culture that loves this phenomenon called New Year's. And I just, I got to be honest, my, I live, live in a divided house and I hate to confess sense publicly, right? Like my wife, New Year's resolutions are a waste of time. We sit around the table at my mother-in-law's every New Year's Day. We say, what are your resolutions? She said, I'm resolved to not make any again because I'm the only one that keeps it every year. So that, that's just, but I love it. Like, I love everything about the process. I like goal setting. I like planning. And so New Year's is like Christmas for me. I just love everything about it. And so let me just give you some stats on our culture uh, related to this phenomenon called called New Year's. OK, this is from a university published journal of clinical psychology here. The top 10 New Year's resolutions for, for 2014. Number one was to lose weight. Number two was to get organized. Number three was to spend less and save more sincerely. Tasha Cunningham. Enjoy life to the fullest was number four. Uh, Staying fit and healthy was number five. Uh, Learn something exciting. Uh, Number seven, quit smoking. Number eight, help others in their dreams. Number nine, fall in love. Number ten, spend more time with our family. Now, now here's what's interesting. Like if you go back and look at polls, what people's New Year's resolutions are, uh, they haven't changed like for, for decades. Like, like this list, rearrange, take a couple out, maybe add a couple in. But basically, most of these, at least half of these, show up every single year. And, and so, so why do people do that? Or, or, or do people even do that anymore? Make these resolutions year after year. But here's some other stats about this uh, New Year's by the same study. The percent of Americans who usually make New Year's resolutions, 45%. How many of you are in that category? Like most years, you, you make resolutions. Right. Yeah. A bunch of hard chargers in here. All right. So so here's the second category uh, percent of Americans who infrequently make New Year's resolutions. That's about 17 percent. How many of you say, well, eh, some years I do, some years I don't. You kind of that category. Right. So that's about two thirds, about 62 percent. So you can do the math. So those percent of Americans who never make New Year's resolutions, 38 uh, percent. How many of you are in that category? Yeah, some of you are dead because you didn't raise your hand at all. So that may be a resolution for you this year that you, you come alive, right? Your heart starts beating again. So, 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 so how do we do? Like that's our culture, right? Uh, so, so here, here's the stats. Uh, the percent of people who are successful in achieving their resolution, like throughout a whole year. What percent do you think it is? Raise your hand if you think it's higher than 20%. Yeah, higher than 10%. Now, raise your hand if you're super negative in here this morning, right? No, listen, 
eight percent. So you were wise not, not to raise eight percent of people actually keep those resolutions. And so uh, so we live in a culture where about two thirds of the people love to make resolutions, love the idea that a new year is more promising than the year behind us. And so if that's you, if you like resolutions, you like to challenge yourself to do better, uh, this series is for you. But if you're the 98% of people who did not raise your hand, then let me encourage you to come back on January the 26th when we start our next series, okay? So, because here's what we're going to do. We're going to, I'm going to challenge you to kind of go to the next level in your spiritual walk by basically pulling out from research some stats that say, hey, here's what the church says they're about. But when you objectively look at the stats, it just doesn't line up. And so we're going to look at three different areas in the Christian life where that actually is the case, according to research. OK, so let me invite you to take your Bibles this morning. And if you have one, turn to Matthew chapter four with me as the first message in a series called Next Level. And the first message is simply entitled uh, Making Missions Personal. And that's what we're going to look at uh, this morning, Making Missions Personal. Matthew chapter four. Uh, let's pick up the text this morning in verse uh, verse 12. Here, here's where it goes. It says, now, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah, the prophet, saying the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light and upon those who sat in that region and shadow of death. Light has dawned. From that time, verse 17, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And then he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And so they immediately left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And so he called them. And immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. And then his fame went all throughout Syria and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted uh, with various diseases and torments and those who were demon possessed uh, epileptics and paralytics. And he healed them. Now, let me just give you a little context here. Uh, in Matthew, uh, you look at the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter one and chapter two is primarily uh, dealing with the birth of Christ. And then in Matthew chapter three, we see John the Baptist and his primary uh, mission and mandate in life was to prepare the way for the coming Messiah, which was Jesus. And so Jesus comes. And then in Matthew chapter four, uh, early in the, the text there, uh, we see that Jesus is taken out and he's tempted by Satan. And so all that happens and it kind of leads us up to the place where the very thing that Jesus came for to seek and save the lost actually starts in Matthew chapter four, verse 12. And so beginning in verse 12, we see Jesus uh, coming and saying, you know what? This has been my mission. Uh, this is what I was uh, brought onto the earth for. And he begins to go about his public ministry and that mission and that mission extends and that invitation to join him. Extends to you and I, and it does not go away until Jesus Christ returns in the clouds for his church. Uh, many of you have uh, heard me say this before, that, that when people are nearing the end of their life, uh, they, they don't usually talk about trivial things. Do they not? Like I've been in the room before on several occasions where people are near the end of their life and, and no one's going, did it, did it actually snow? Uh, no one's asking about the bingles. Well, there might be a couple people that might be doing that, right? But when people come down to their final words, they know their 
time is short. And so they weigh those and measure those words carefully. And they actually talk about what's important. And so, so what was important on the heart of Jesus uh, when we read in Matthew chapter 28, that when Jesus had finished up his public mission and ministry that started here in verse 12, uh, before he ascended back to the father, he, here's the last words of Jesus. Now, listen, he'd been pouring in these people for, you know, for three and a half years and, and they'd seen him do some incredible things. They saw him be persecuted and resurrected. I mean, just, just, so here's the last thing of all those experiences together. Here's the last words he leads them with his ascension. He says, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And so Jesus, in all these experience, shared experiences, all his love, he had from all the incredible things they saw him do. The last words he leaves them with are go and make disciples of all the nations. Like until I come back, until you see me touch down again on this Mount of Olives. Listen, that's what you should be doing. And so the question is not what should we be doing? The question is, how are we doing? How are we doing? And so so let me just tell you why I chose this particular area to start off with, to to challenge us to go uh, personally in the next next level. Here's the stats when it comes to to mission or personal evangelism, uh, whatever words that make sense to you, what we're talking about here. Here's the stats. Ninety five percent. 95% of people will never lead anyone else to Christ in their lifetime. Those who are Christ followers, 95% of them will never lead anyone else to Christ. Now, let me just let me just set some context here, because that's a little bit of a loaded stat, right? Now, because what the stat doesn't tell us is the number of people who are sharing the gospel faithfully, but people aren't responding. The stat doesn't tell us the people who are planting and watering and investing in other people, serving them in Christ's name to build a relationship. So so I guarantee you, listen, it's a loaded stat, but can we just be honest this morning? That the reason some of those folks in that 95%, that maybe a large chunk of them that would be true of, is because they're not even engaging themselves in the process. Like they're not even interested. As a matter of fact, the whole idea is fearful to them and it just has a negative uh, connotation for them. And so uh, so some of you, that may be the idea when we talk about this. And I said, hey, here's what we're going to talk about this morning. Uh, for some of you, it just has it has a bad taste in your mouth. Like, yeah, evangelism and sharing it. Like I tried that once and it didn't go well. So I haven't tried it since. Maybe some of you can think of a time where you tried to share your faith with someone. And you got all tripped up and, and you, you couldn't articulate what you believed and why. And so you just thought, oh, that was so humiliating. I'm never going to do that again. Or maybe you think that evangelism is uh, this thing where, where people can, you know, you ask you hard questions. And so you've got to know all these answers and scientific theories. Or, or maybe sometime uh, someone said, hey, I heard you're a Christ follower. And can you answer this hard question? You couldn't answer. And so you just thought, I'm just, I'm just going to back off from that. Or maybe uh, your, your evangelism, the, the way you were trained is like, you had to memorize these large chunks of scripture or these canned presentations like where you ask this and you ask this. Uh, I remember going through the evangelism class one time and they said, hey, the hardest thing to do is to turn a normal conversation into a spiritual conversation. And it is, you know, it's hard to go from, hey, did you, did you check the Bengals games? Are you going to hell? Like that, that's like that's a hard turn, right? Like you're going off the road if you make that sharp of a turn, right? And so they had all these like things you could say to turn the conversation to spiritual things. And they're just the stupidest things. Like one time they said, that, hey, maybe you're out somewhere and someone's drinking at the water fountain. And you lean up in their ear and say, have you ever drank the living water? Listen, you lean up in my ear. I'm dropping you off like the mail. I mean, I'm, I'm clocking you. I'm like, get off me, creeper, right? 
So the idea, like, like, listen, let's just be honest. It's hard. That's why the stats are that way. And there's a joke that someone said, the one thing believers and unbelievers have in common is they both hate evangelism. Like, right? Like, I don't want to do it. And, and, you know, people who don't know Christ, like, don't do it to me because I had a bad experience. There's someone yelling at me or or all those kinds of things. So here's what I want to do today. I want to take us back to just the basics. Just some foundational principles about being a more effective witness for Christ. I want to clear up some confusion about what evangelism is and is not, because I think much of the fear is associated to a lot of confusion about what we should and shouldn't be doing. So let me just find what evangelism is and is not before we actually uh, get to the text for a few minutes this morning. Let me tell you what evangelism is. Evangelism is simply communicating. Hear me. Not just modeling. That's important, but it's not just modeling. It's communicating the gospel the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who don't know Christ with the hopes that they might receive him. That, that's what it is. All right. And, and unless the gospel is communicated, then evangelism is not taking place. And you can be doing pre-evangelism, building relationships, serving people in Christ's name. That's all a part of the process. It's incredibly important. But until the gospel is communicated from one person to another, then evangelism is not taking place. It may be ministry, and that's important, but it's not mission. And so evangelism is sharing the gospel with those who don't know Jesus Christ. It's really that simple, right? So, so that's what it is. But let me clear up some things that it's not. Because in some of your minds, your idea of what it is is like, oh, that's just, I can't even think about doing that. So you just kind of pull away from the whole subject and, and disengage it. So let me tell you some things evangelism is not. Evangelism is not a debate. Like for some of you in your mind that when you hear the word, you're just thinking two people red faced and angry and debating and back and forth. And those kind of listen, evangelism is not a debate when the spirit of God has made a heart ready to receive the gospel. That person isn't interested in arguing. They just want truth. And so at the very point they want to start debating, you know what that should send off? The spirit of God's not at work on this person's heart. It's not my job to do the Spirit's work. So it's not debate. It's not trying to convince people, argue people into some decision or, or those kinds of things. Let me tell you, else, evangelism also, it's not trying to make someone interested who's not interested. Now, let me just unpack that for a little bit, because for some of you, that sounds like heresy. You're like, well, I thought that was the whole deal. Like, I found people who weren't interested in Jesus and, and as an effective witness for Christ, I needed to make them interested. And I thought that was the whole point of evangelism. Well, let me explain this to you. Biblical evangelism is sharing the gospel with hearts that the Spirit has already prepared who are ready to receive the gospel. You cannot make someone interested who's not interested. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. And once you understand that, it takes all the pressure off of you. If you go to share and someone is not interested, you can't make an uninterested person interested in the gospel. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. And so my job is just to simply be discerning, have my eyes open and discern where the spirits already at work. And yes, you can engage in pre-evangelism, you can share truth, you can love them, you can build a relationship, but you cannot make someone interested apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. John 6, says this, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. That's what the scripture says. And so evangelism is simply being discerning and finding out where the spirit of God is at work around you. 
And that takes all the pressure off of me because if the spirit of God's not at work, then I'm going to share and I'm going to love on them and I'm going to serve them. and I'm going to build a relationship. But at the end of the day, if God has not prepared their heart, then guess what? They're not ready to receive Christ. And I wish I had known that when I was younger, like when I was younger and I started sharing my faith, I wasn't interested. Matter of fact, I didn't care if you were not interested because it wasn't about you. It was about me and getting marks in my Bible. And I share the gospel. Listen, and I knew all the answers when people give an objection. And so at the end of that presentation, I could get a lot of people to pray the prayer. But after a few times of seeing no change, as a matter of fact, even a couple uh, individuals saying, I'm not really interested in following Jesus. I just don't want to go to hell when I die. I realized that my approach, uh, for lack of a better term, was a little jacked up. All right. I was running ahead of the spirit because it was more about me. And look what a great soul winner I am. And so what is biblical evangelism? It's, it's sharing the gospel, the hearts that God, the spirit of God has already prepared James McDonald, who uh, many of you may know is my favorite Bible teacher. I just love to listen to him. Uh, many of you have, uh, went through his studies. We've offered some of his studies here. Uh, they've adopted a similar philosophy, some biblical evangelism. And they call it this in their church. I love this title. Their evangelism strategy is called Red Apples. He said, we're, we're looking for red apples that the Spirit is at work on. And here's what he said in describing this. He said, evangelism, we refer to people ready to respond to the gospel now as red apples. They are ripe to the gospel. For that reason, we refer to people not ready as green apples. He said, is this biblical? He said, if you look at Jesus's interactions with people, it changes the way you see evangelism. Jesus Christ constantly cut through the crowd filled with green apples to focus his energy on the red ones right for his message. He gives some examples. He left a crowd of green apples to talk with Zacchaeus, the lone red one. He turned a crowd of green apples to the desperate woman with the issue of blood, even though she was surrounded by a mass of people. He stopped for the centurion, determined to see his daughter healed. He embraced the woman shamed by her sin, whom the crowds despised. He talked at great length with Nicodemus, who longed for more than his formulaic religiosity. In every instance, Jesus invested in ripe red apples. And listen to this. Those with strong readiness to abandon the life they knew for something better. And for some of you, your negative experience around sharing your faith is you are trying to make green apples red when only the Spirit of God can do that. And so that's what evangelism is. It's being discerning and serving people and building relationships. Why? To discover if the Spirit of God is working, if they're receptive to the gospel, and if they're not, there's nothing that you and I can do except love them unconditionally as Christ loved up while we're still in our own sins. And so that's what it is. That's what it's not. Let me tell you one more thing, then we'll get on to the text, I promise. Let me tell you what else evangelism is not. It's not an event. It's not an event. Like for, for so many people, it's just this event. I had this encounter and it just, oh, just there's this event. And, and look at me and how good is my, you know, it's not an event. Listen, evangelism is a process. And the question is not, are you winning people to Christ? But that's a guilt driven question. The question is, are you engaging yourself in the process of building relationships with the intent of sharing the gospel? You say, is that biblical? But it's a process. Here's what First Corinthians 3 says. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believe as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. You, you see the process there? You and I are planting gospel seeds. We're watering those seeds, reinforcing, answering questions, serving people, building relationships. But at the end of the day, God gives the increase. Salvation is the work of God. And so he goes on to say, he says, so neither he who plants or he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. Do you see that? 
that God is at work and for whatever reason, he chooses to involve you and I in the process of bringing people to himself and everybody has a part to play in the process. So the question is, are you engaged in the process? So that's what it is. That's what it's not. Are you planting? Are you watering? So, so let me give you some really good, good, good news. You ready? That was all free. All right. Say amen if you want to get to the text. Yeah, we've got about another hour, so just settle in. Here we go. Three basic principles in Matthew chapter 4 about reaching people and being a better witness for Christ. Just some basic, basic principles I want to walk you through this morning. Basic principle number one in sharing your faith is simply this. It's to get the message right. Get the message right. There are so many false gospels being preached out there today. Gospels of works and you just work harder and God will affirm you and receive you. There is prosperity gospel being preached. There is a gospel as a mixture of where there's all there's a all kinds of gospels being preached this uh, in reality. But the crucial thing here is to get the message right before you ever learn how to share it. You know, for, for decades, our pickup line as evangelicals uh, went something like this. If you die tonight, w- would heaven be your home? And like, listen, I've, I don't know how many people I've asked that in my life. But I've asked more than a few people in my lifetime that question. And it may be a good question to ask at some point in the conversation. But, but let's just, if we can have intellectual honesty with the scriptures. Can, can we just be honest with the scriptures this morning? Jesus wasn't about going around making sure people were ready to die. Jesus was about inviting people to a new way of living and following him. As a matter of fact, the invitation over and over and over in the Gospels, over 23 times in the Gospels alone, the invitation of Jesus was not, are you ready to die? The invitation of Jesus was, follow me. And Jesus was inviting people to a whole new way of living, not just getting ready to die. And when a person says, well, I want to be ready to die, but I'm not interested in a whole new way of living. They don't want to be converted. They want fire insurance. And Jesus is not in the insurance business. I'm sorry for all of you who are right. And so that's that's what he's preaching there. He's preaching. Follow me. Follow me. Follow me over and over and over again. The scriptures, those with a strong readiness to abandon life, they knew for something better. Now, what do we call that? When someone's living life, pursuing some things, and they abandon that life for something better to follow Jesus, they turn the other direction. We call that repentance. That's what it's called. We call that repentance. When I turn from my old lifestyle to a better way of following Jesus, not just being ready to die, of following Jesus, the word for that is repentance. Now, let's just be honest this morning. That word does not have a happy connotation, does it not? Like, like when you talk about repentance, it's just like, oh, that sounds angry or that just I just have this negative connotation about repentance. And, and when I share my faith, I, you know, I want to be more like Jesus. Like I want to be winsome and I want to you know, the old saying that, that you can attract more bees with honey than we well, can't say that in church. But right. And so so like I want to be like Jesus in my approach. Listen, that's a great goal. That's a great goal. What did Jesus do? Look at verse 17 from that time. What time? When Jesus began his public ministry and mission from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say what? Say it. Repent. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know what John the Baptist's message was the whole time? Repent because the Savior's coming. You know what the message of the disciples were in preaching in the early church? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know what the invitation of Jesus was over and over and over? Repent. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so that was the message of Jesus right from the very beginning. 
That was the message of John the Baptist. That was the message of the early church, inviting people not just to be ready to die, but to a new and better way of living, following Jesus, turning and going in the other direction. So that's the message of the early church. Why is that not the message of of our church? And I mean the church in America. Can we just be honest this morning? It's really simple. It's because repentance doesn't sell tickets. Like no one's wanting to come in and have someone hold up the word of God and say, hey, come to the place of brokenness over your own sins so you can walk anew with Jesus Christ. That's not selling tickets. Preaching repentance doesn't put butts in the seats. I don't know if you can say butts in church or not, but I just did. I'll repent later. But I want you to listen, church, this morning. The goal of the church is not to put butts in the seats. The goal of the church is that the glory of Jesus Christ will be made manifest in the presence of the saints. That the glory of God would fall on this place. That's the goal of every single church. Doesn't matter how many tickets it sells. That's the goal of every church. That we would lift high the thrice holy God and call people to that standard of holiness. And so that's the message. It was over and over. Get the message right. The message of repentance over and over and over is what was preached early in the church. Verse 20 provides a great illustration of repentance. Look at uh, verse 20, what it says. It says they immediately left their nets and followed him. Listen, do you you understand what this is? Fishing nets were incredibly valuable. I mean, it was their economy. It was their whole story. It was their whole way of living. We're tied up in those nets. And so to lay those nets down symbolically was literally to lay down their life and say, I'm not going my old life. I'm going in a new way following Jesus. That's repentance. And so we've got to get the message right. And hear me this morning. The gospel apart from repentance is not the gospel any longer. And if it's not the gospel, it doesn't have the power to save anyone in the first place. So get the message right. Repentance Embracing Jesus Christ by faith alone, getting the message right. Here's the second principle uh, we see in chapter four is simply this. It's to invest in those around you. Just the people that God places in your path, not by chance, but oftentimes by divine providence. How many of you are here this morning? That's disturbing. because <laughs> Like I'm here in spirit, but not. How many of you are here this morning? Let's just take a little thing of survey. How many of you are here this morning or you started going to church or started coming to this church because at some point in your life, someone invited you to come with them? How many of you? Yeah, about half. Same in the first service, about, about half the folks. Let me give you some stats. We, we love programs in, in our church culture. Like we have all these programs for, for evangelism. Like we had a, a CWT, Christians Witness Training. We had EE, Evangelism Explosion. We had a EE, we had Faith. We had CWT, we had AARP. What's that one? Point is, we've got all these like... Listen, let me tell you what stats have not changed. Hear me. In over 50 years. Over 50 years, the stats have not changed. Over 85% of people that ever attend church do so by personal invitation. By someone investing in the people right around them that God places in their path, not by chance, but by providence, and investing in them, building a relationship, and just inviting them with them to hear the gospel message. You say, is that biblical? Listen, it was the, it was the method of Jesus. Investing in the people right around you throughout life that God places in your path. Look at verse 18. And Jesus walking by the Sea of Galilee... Saul, two brothers. Hey, come follow me. What's this? Verse verse 21. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, many nets. And so he called them. 
And so, so here's the difference. Jesus is just living his life on mission with open eyes, looking at the people as he goes about his normal life with, with, uh, with a gospel approach and just looking at these folks through missional eyes. And he invests in me and says, hey, would you like to follow me? And that method has not changed in 2000 years. And the people that God wants wants to be reaching your circle of influence, this is a radical thought that God probably wants to use you in the process to actually reach them. I I can't tell you how many times I've been doing this for for 13 years. I can't tell you how many times someone has uh, called and said, hey, pastor, I've got someone in my circle of influence, someone in my family or someone here, whatever. And and I really would. They're not they don't know Christ. And so I think you should go talk to them. Now, what, what do you think the likelihood that an unchurched person Want someone to knock on their door, a total stranger who's a preacher. Like, like if, if they were prayers, like they would be sitting at home praying and say, God, send a, send a preacher here today. Make him young and attractive. Strong. Listen, the people that God has placed into your life that you already have relationships with and they trust you. Those are probably the people that God wants you to reach. And listen, we're all for short-term trips. We're going to push short-term trips as long as I'm here. But listen, if all you ever do is go on short-term trips and never invest in the people right around you, then missions is a program at your church, not a lifestyle. And so invest in the people right around you. For Jesus to invest in these people, it didn't make sense to him. And for some of you, the people in your circle of influence, it doesn't make sense to you. I don't, you know, I don't know why God, it just doesn't make sense to me. Listen, for Jesus to invite these people to follow them at this point in time, to leave their nets, to leave their livelihood, it would have made no sense at all. But he's just going about the people he comes into contact with that God places in his path and in your path, not by chance, but by providence. He just says, hey, would you like to journey with me? That's evangelism. Here's the last principle and foundation is this. Let me give you some, some practical steps to get started. Here's the last principle in this passage. simply this. It's let Jesus fix them. Let Jesus fix them. You see, for some of you, you've got people in your circle of influence that desperately need Christ, but you won't share Christ with you only invite them to church because you can't figure out in your mind how they would ever get their life straightened out enough to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Listen, let me give you some encouraging news. That's not your problem. It's not even your job. You know, my favorite verse in this passage is verse 24. What's it say? What was the method? And then his fame went all throughout Syria and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments and those who were demon possessed and epileptics and paralytics. And he healed them. Let me just paraphrase that. They brought to him every tough case around. And he healed them. You know the four most encouraging words? They brought to him. And that's all evangelism is. It's just bringing people to Jesus, bring the knowledge of Jesus and the gospel to other people. You don't worry about, well, well, they need to get in church first. They need to quit living this lifestyle or quit doing this or they need to start hanging around with these people. No, 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 listen, just bring them to Jesus and let him do the hard work of changing hearts like only he can do. Some of you have uh, parents and your parents are prodigals. And some of you are just you're just pushing them further away because you're not bringing them the, the healing message of Jesus. You're just standing in the door all the time, maybe proverbially or maybe literally, and just reminding them that they're sick. Listen, people don't get well by someone standing over them, reminding them that they're sick. They get well by being taken to the doctor. 
And so the goal is not to just reinforce you're sick, you're sick, you need to get your life cleaned up, you need to get things straight now, you need to quit doing that, starting this, you're sick. Listen, just bring them to Jesus. Is all that it is. All evangelism is, is one beggar telling another beggar where he found bread at. That's all that it is. Bring them to Jesus and let him do the changing of their hearts that leads to change behavior. Four of you excited, the rest of you are Presbyterians. Now, now here, I'm sorry if you're Presbyterian, you're not coming back, are you? Like, oh, that's really offensive. Listen, listen, we're almost done here. Let me, let me just, because here's what most of the time when I've listened to sermons on evangelism, most of the time it's been, been guilt motivation. You're like, we need to win people to Christ and, and 95% of people aren't doing it. So if you really love Jesus, you'll be here Thursday night. We're going to go on visitation. And like the whole church comes out and the next week, half the church and the fourth the church, and then nobody. Right. Let me tell you why that is, is because guilt is a great short term motivator, but guilt doesn't lead to true change. And my job is to not make you feel guilty. My job, according to Ephesians chapter four, verse 11 and 12, is to equip you. To be more effective. So I'm going to give you five practical, super simple ways to get equipped and to be a more effective witness for Christ. Here's how I get started. Number one is this. Ask God to grow your love for people. Ask God to grow your love for people. Now, some of you think, well, listen, the better prayer is that God would would reduce my fear because that's why I don't share because I'm scared. You know what the scripture says in first John chapter four, verse 18, that perfect love casts out fear. You know what courage is? Courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is moving ahead in spite of my fear. Listen, I've been doing this for 13 years. I can answer almost every single objection someone has to the gospel. You know what? I still get scared when I share. My own insecurities, my own. There's there's still sometimes there's sometimes not, but sometimes I still get scared when I share. And the goal is not that God take that fear away because that's never going to happen. Listen, the goal is that God would grow my love for people so much to the point that the love I have for them pushes back behind me the fear of sharing with them. Perfect love casts out fear. First John 4.18. Ask God to grow your love for people. Number two, passionately pursue intimacy with Jesus. Passionately pursue intimacy. Listen, one of my favorite verses in all the New Testament is Acts chapter 4, verse 13. Because it starts off like a slam. But it ends up a compliment. All right. Here's what it says. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, that's what we all want, right? And perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men. Like that. That's what everybody wants, right? Like, hey, I was looking at you and I couldn't help but notice how ignorant you are. They marveled. They marveled. Why? And took note of them. Why? Because they saw they had been with Jesus. Listen, your boldness in sharing the gospel is in direct proportion to the depth of intimacy of your walk with Jesus Christ. Power doesn't come from your personality. Power comes from spending time in the presence of the Father. They marveled. Why? They were unlearned. Because they saw they had been with Jesus. It's not your personality. It's not your presentation. It's spending time in the presence of Jesus Christ is what gives you boldness. Intimacy always precedes activity. Worship always precedes work. Here's the third key. Ask God to humble you. Ask God to humble you. Oftentimes, the reason we don't share is we're more concerned about how we're going to be perceived than we are the glory of God being made known. Listen, you can call that whatever you want. It's pride. And so God humbled me to the place where I don't care how people perceive me, not an arrogant, not a break, but listen, it doesn't overwhelm me to the point where I'm not willing to share. Ask God to humble you. Here, here's the fourth one. Tell your story. Listen, just get in the habit of sharing your testimony. 
Share it with Christians. Think of the Christians around you that don't even know your test. Listen, one of the things you could do to get started is just to email folks in your circle of influence. Hey, you may not know this, but one of my commitments is just to tell people my story. And I just want to share my testimony with you. And if you're not willing to share your story with other Christians, then the likelihood you're ever going to share your story with a non-Christian is very, very, very slim. Some of you have never been baptized. If you won't get up in front of other Christians and proclaim your faith in Jesus Christ, the likelihood you're going to do that in culture is very slim. Tell your story. No one can argue with a changed life. The most effective witness for the gospel is a changed life. Here's the last thing. Build relationships. Build relationships. We live in a post-Christian culture. I hate to break the news to you. This is not 1950 anymore. People no longer trust the church. They no longer trust our message. And so the fact that you and I could share the gospel with a total stranger, and they just trust it and all those things. Listen, that, that they have on a rare occasion, but by and large, that is not the culture we live in. So you've got to build relationships with people so they trust you and your motives. Listen, if you're not willing to build a relationship with someone to share the gospel and hear me this morning, then they will see evangelism as something you're trying to do to them, not for them. Build relationships. Build relationships. Many of you have read the book Purpose Driven Life, bestseller of all time, nonfiction work. Rick Warren shares the following story about his dad, just an incredible story. His dad never pastored a, a church over 200 people, um, but he pastored for over 50 years. He said his dad was a simple preacher, but was a man with a mission. He said he loved taking teams of volunteers overseas to build church buildings for small congregations. Listen, listen to this. In his lifetime, he built over 150 churches around the world. He said, 1999, my dad died of cancer. He said, in the final week of his life, the disease kept him awake in a semi-conscious state almost around the clock. He said, as he dreamed, he would talk out loud about what he was dreaming. And so Rick Warren said, sitting by his bedside, he said, I learned a lot about my dad just listening to his dreams in that semi-conscious state. He relived one building project after another one night near the end uh, while Rick and his wife and his niece were by his side, his dad suddenly became very active and tried to get out of bed. Of course, he was too weak and Rick's wife insisted he lay back down. But he persisted in trying to get out of bed. So Rick's wife asked, Jimmy, what are you trying to do? And he replied, got to save one more for Jesus. Got to save one more for Jesus. Got to save one more for Jesus. And they said over the course of the next hour, he repeated that phrase over a hundred times. Rick Warren says, I sat by my dad's bed. Tears rolled down my cheeks. He bowed his head and thanked God for his dad's faith. And he said, at that moment, my dad reached out his hand, placed his frail hand on my head as if commissioning me and said, save one more for Jesus. Save one more for Jesus. Church, I can't think of a better New Year's resolution in 2014 to go to the next level than to save one more for Jesus. One more for Jesus. One more for Jesus. Missions is not a trip you go on. Missions is not a check you write. Missions is not a, a bus ride. Missions is a lifestyle. And that lifestyle has a simple cry to it. One more for Jesus. One more for Jesus.